Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. When the pandemic hit, New England states put moratoriums on evictions that helped tenants who couldn't pay rent, but left some small landlords in a tough spot. It's like everything I'm trying to do, it's working against me because I can't evict them. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. With evictions expected to soar, the debate over extending the moratorium. Plus, a recent night of vandalism in Rhode Island was blamed on outside agitators. The story is much more complicated. I dealt with a lot of racism in my life, and I've had friends that have passed away due to, like, brutality. I didn't go down there to, like, tear buildings down. I just felt like I needed to be present. And dovetailing economic recovery with climate action. So if we took that money now and invested it in retrofitting homes, building energy-efficient plants, and so on, we're getting extraordinary bangs for our buck. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, 10 public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks for joining us. You lose a job. You struggle to pay rent. That's been the reality for many New Englanders. Now, as housing relief measures and pandemic unemployment benefits are expiring, evictions cases are expected to soar. Rhode Island and New Hampshire have already lifted eviction moratoriums. A few other New England states, like Massachusetts, are set to do so in August. Some lawmakers are pushing for a bill that would extend the eviction moratorium, but critics say that would hurt small landlords. WBUR's Simone Rios explores some of the solutions being considered in Massachusetts to prevent an eviction crisis. Carolina lives in East Boston with her husband and four kids. Her baby was born at the start of the pandemic in March. They lost their cleaning jobs shortly after the birth. Because she and her husband are undocumented, the family can't get the kind of federal benefits that have helped others in the state keep up with their rent. As a mother, I'm very concerned about not having money to pay the rent, she says. My kids have watched me crying, and they've asked if we'll have to live on the streets. We've agreed to use only Carolina's first name because the family fears legal repercussions due to the couple's immigration status. Now the family owes $6,000 for three months in back rent, and the landlord has threatened to take legal action. Carolina says landlords need to understand the situation tenants are facing. It's not that we want to live for free, she says. We can't work now, and we've never been short on the rent before. In normal times, the family might be facing eviction. But renters across the state are protected by a moratorium on evictions that's been in place for the last three months. That's set to expire on August 18th, and advocates say Massachusetts could see a massive wave of evictions that would hit hardest in black and brown neighborhoods. Advocates want to extend the moratorium, saying it's a public health necessity during the pandemic. But critics say that would be devastating for some landlords. Carlene Sherry walks through the two-family house she owns in Dorchester. She says one of her tenants stopped paying the rent in March. (laughs) 
The woman on the first floor hands Sherry a wad of cash, two thousand dollars. Sherry counts it and then peels off a hundred to give back as a goodwill gesture. For the baby. Okay, thank you. <laughs> I saw three beds in there once, and then of course the AC gonna—that's when they're gonna put out the window. On the second floor, the tenants cited the evictions moratorium as a justification for not paying, even though they appear to be working. The moratorium doesn't mean they can live rent-free. It's just that Sherry can't evict them, even though they owe her ten thousand dollars in back rent. It's like everything I'm trying to do, it's working against me, because they they know the law. I can't evict them. I forced to sell. Sherry says after four months in the red, she wants out of the property. And she has a buyer. Only she can't close until the tenant who's not paying moves out, and there's no indication that's going to happen anytime soon. Sherry says if the rent moratorium is extended, legislators should create a mechanism to prevent bad faith tenants from abusing the law. And she's not alone, according to Doug Quatrachi, head of the advocacy group Mass Landlords. So there's a lot of frustrated landlords who do feel like、uh, the eviction moratorium. By being so broad, you don't have to prove you're impacted by COVID. It's just enabled some people to take advantage. We don't think it's many, but it's enough. Quatrachi says about five percent of his members are unable to pay their bills and are ready to sell, and another twenty percent don't know how they're going to make ends meet at the end of this year. State lawmakers are considering a bill that would extend the eviction moratorium through next August. It would also create a relief fund to help landlords collect rent lost because of the pandemic. Clark Ziegler, head of the quasi-governmental Massachusetts Housing Partnership, says stopping evictions alone won't solve the underlying problem. Which is that it costs money to operate to provide housing,、um, and you know, in addition to you know mortgage expenses, there's utilities and insurance and maintenance and、um, so on. And so, the unless we sort of replace this lost income at some scale, it's hard to imagine other interventions that are going to be very effective. To keep the rental market afloat, Ziegler says tenants need hundreds of millions of dollars in state or federal aid over the course of a year-long moratorium. Last month, Democrats in Congress proposed a new stimulus bill that would include a hundred billion in rental assistance and ban all evictions for 12 months. But it's made little progress in the Senate. On the state level, the Baker administration announced a new 20 million dollar rental and mortgage assistance program. Quatrachi from Mass Landlords says we need to think bigger, far bigger. He wants to see a new tax directed at single-family zoning that would generate enough money to guarantee rents are paid until the pandemic comes to an end. That was WBUR's Simon Rios. That story was part of a bilingual collaboration between WBUR in Boston and the newspaper El Planeta. We'll have a link to the Spanish version of the story at our website nextnewengland.org. It's that point in the show where we hear from you, our listeners. Last week, we asked you how the pandemic has impacted your personal relationships. We got this call. Hi, my name is Kelly. I'm from Norwich, Connecticut.、Um, both my husband and I are fairly newly married, and we were both worried that we might not get along during this process. But we found ourselves growing much, much closer. We also heard from another Kelly, Kelly Doyle in Central Maine. My relationships. Have gotten even more strained. That's my experience. I called Kelly up and asked her to describe a particular interaction that felt strained. I have a friend who 
she came into my home for a visit and she had on a mask and I did not have one on. And I was like, I just want you know, to make you feel comfortable. I'm sorry that you feel like you have to wear a mask at my house. And she said, oh, I'm trying to protect myself because I'm afraid I might have it and I might give it to you. And I said, well, I I can handle it. <laughs> I said, if you're worried about me, please don't worry about me. I'm fine. So my relationship with my friend is it's awkward and I feel diseased. And there are some people that are absolutely angry if you're not wearing a mask and you can't really wear a sign that says, yes, I have asthma, I'm high risk and I'm not wearing a mask and it's none of your business and I'm sorry if you feel like I'm going to contaminate you. (laughs) It's just so weird. Is there any part of you, like some people would say, okay, I get that you don't want to wear a mask, but just wear it for her. What's your response to that? like line of thinking? Um, I have had that thought. Like when I go to the grocery store and I see the young kids that are bagging groceries, they have to go to work and they're running the registers and they've got their masks on and the little plastic thing up. And I do have compassion in that. And I do wear a mask when I go to the grocery store, not because I think it's doing anything one way or the other, except maybe alleviating their fear. That was Kelly Doyle. Kelly lives in Piscataquis County, Maine, a large rural county where only four coronavirus cases have been reported, none of them fatal. Kelly says she doesn't know anyone personally who's suffered complications from the virus, and in that way, it hasn't hit close to home for her. Just a little reminder about wearing masks. Top health experts, including the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, say Wearing a cloth mask in public or when you're around people outside your household is a simple way to help stop spreading the coronavirus. Some masks are better than others at filtering particles and protecting the person wearing the mask, but any type of face covering helps reduce the chance that an infected person could spread the virus. So now we turn to you. How do you feel about wearing a mask? Are there times where you think people have gone overboard? Or do you notice fewer people wearing masks as infection rates decline in New England? And what do you think about that? Leave a comment at 860-275-7595. Again, 860-275-7595. Or you can email us at next at ctpublic.org. And thank you. The vast majority of protests against police violence and racism have been peaceful in New England and across the country. One of the few places where there has been some destruction is Providence, Rhode Island. It happened the first night in June when hundreds of people descended on downtown. The damage was initially blamed on outsiders and anti-government types using the Black Lives Matter slogan as cover for vandalism and burglary. But the Public's Radio and the Boston Globe found what happened that night was more complicated. Reporter Lynn Arditi explains. On the first Monday night in June, in the midst of a coronavirus pandemic that had shuttered Providence's nightclubs and bars, the city's downtown exploded. Michael Taberkia stepped out of his apartment on Waybosset Street to have a smoke and heard people driving by chanting, Black Lives Matter. Matter. Taberkia is 24 and the son of Colombian immigrants. He had just graduated from Rhode Island College and moved into his own apartment downtown. 
On the 11 o'clock news, he heard about the protests sweeping the country following the death of George Floyd at the hands of police in Minneapolis. He thought the cars were heading for another protest. I was thinking of George Floyd. He 100% made me want to go. So I called the buddy up and asked if he wanted to go check the statehouse house because uh, I thought there was a protest. Hundreds of people had gathered outside the Providence Place Mall. Police cruisers lined Francis Street. Uniformed officers stood shoulder to shoulder. But they could not contain the crowd, as Facebook Live videos show. Hey, this is bigger than something I could ever be a part of. This is revolution, man! That young man, shouting for a revolution, was not wearing a mask, and people in the crowd recognized his face. He and his buddy, both white, record rap videos in their backyard in Warwick. They call themselves Warack. And as looters broke into the mall, the Warack guys urged the crowd to join them. Let's go! Come on! A parked cruiser was doused with gasoline and set on fire. The crowd spilled into nearby Kennedy Plaza. Siobhan Young, a 40-year-old local artist and filmmaker, was there with her boyfriend recording the scene on her cell phone. She talked to a young black woman. I'm 25 years old, and I'm speaking the truth. I got two kids, and I damn sure don't want them to grow up in this kind of society. So now we're going to speak up. We're going to speak up because we we black, white. We even got white people on our team. You got Spanish people on our team. We standing up. It's about time our world take over with ours. By morning, stores throughout downtown Providence and the mall had been ransacked and vandalized. Several police officers were treated for minor injuries, and at least two civilians had been hurt. Channel 12 reports one bystander lost an eye. The morning after, Governor Gina Raimondo spoke at a news conference outside the mall. Make no mistake about it. What we saw last night was not a protest. It was not a protest. What we saw last night was an organized attack on our community. Law enforcement officials now concede that most of the so-called outside agitators were homegrown. All but half a dozen of the 65 people arrested were from Rhode Island. They were mostly young men from Providence and nearby communities. Less than half of the locals had prior criminal records. None had any known ties to any anti-government groups. One of the people arrested was Daryl Jordan. He had come downtown that night with his girlfriend, the one who recorded the young black woman speaking out in Kennedy Plaza. Jordan is also black. I've dealt with a lot of racism in my life, and I've had friends that have passed away due to, like, brutality. I didn't go down there to, like, burn cars or tear buildings down. I just felt like I needed to be present. Jordan is 44 and lives in East Providence. The video Young recorded shows police in riot gear charging down the sidewalk toward Jordan. Seconds later, he is face down on the sidewalk. At the time, the police appeared to have been chasing another man who had run off. Jordan was later diagnosed with a concussion. He spent a night at the adult correctional institutions in Cranston. Jordan was charged with disorderly conduct, a misdemeanor. While he was locked up, he says, he talked to some of the young people downtown that night. Like the one I was um, in the cell with, his dad actually passed away due to police brutality. So he was down there not to loot a riot. He was just down there to just protest and have a voice. And he told me he didn't know it was going to like go the way it did. But others knew full well what was planned that night. 
A flyer circulating on social media earlier in the day called for looting in Providence at midnight. Police alerted mall officials who decided to close the mall early. They were kind of just down there just to grab things and burn things, and they saw it as an opportunity to be belligerent. Jordan says he tried to reason with them. Those were the ones I was trying to get to and talk to them like, it's not about that. Then there were guys like Martin Diaz. He's 20 and lives in East Providence with his mother and younger brother and sister. He was arrested and charged with breaking into this 7-Eleven store in Kennedy Plaza. His mother, Maria Diaz, talked about her son in the doorway of their multifamily house. He works, he has his own money, there's no need for it. He knows better. He was brought up well. The looting and vandalism left much of downtown Providence in shambles with block after block of boarded-up storefronts. It's impossible to know the motives behind all of the vandalism. But experts who study racial justice and protest movements say destruction of police cars and other symbols of authority can also be viewed as political. Leisha Brooks works at the Southern Poverty Law Center, a nonprofit specializing in civil rights. The fact that people engage in violence tells us that there's something wrong. And so if we could look past the violent act itself and try to understand what it is, what message are, are people trying to give, to, to, to deliver. In the days since the riots, scores of people have turned out to help clean up and repair the damage. Among them was Tuberkia, the Rhode Island College graduate who thought he was joining a peaceful protest. He was arrested while recording videos of the smashed storefront windows downtown. He was charged with disorderly conduct and resisting arrest. After he was released from the ACI, he helped Young, the filmmaker and other local artists, create a mural of Martin Luther King Jr. on a boarded-up storefront. And later that week, Young and her boyfriend, Jordan, went back downtown again, this time for a peaceful protest at the State House. Jordan says they were glad they did. We went down there and it ended up beautiful. It was needed. It was actually like healing to see everybody come together. So I I felt better about that. Providence Police and the FBI are continuing to investigate the source of the flyer, as well as the destruction and theft on that first night in June. In the weeks since, police have issued more arrest warrants, including one for the Warack rappers who egged on the crowds that night. Police also said in a statement that one officer has been placed on administrative leave with pay pending the outcome of an investigation involving an adult male who was injured that night. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Lynn Arditti. Antonia Ayers-Brown of The Public's Radio and Amanda Milkovitz of The Boston Globe co-reported this story. Coming up, tackling climate change and pandemic recovery by investing in green solutions. And a husband's in a nursing home and the wife's alone at home. We'll hear them reunite after three months of separation during the pandemic, and it will melt your heart. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Welcome back. I'm Morgan Springer. We've talked about the economic struggles of this pandemic. Now we're going to look at one potential silver lining, the opportunity for climate action. 
it's likely the federal government will approve stimulus money again to try to boost the economy. And many environmentalists propose we intentionally direct some of those funds toward green recovery. But how? Bruce Gellerman is a senior reporter at WBUR in Boston, and he asked environmental thinkers in Massachusetts that very question during a recent reporting project. Bruce, thanks for coming on next. Uh, You bet, Morgan. So first, tell us a bit about the project. Well, I try to cast a wide net of people to, to get them to give me ideas on how to have this kind of green dream recovery. So I interviewed about two dozen people, and they sent in their, their little uh, audio clips of their ideas. And everything from like food waste composting to, to fusion energy. It was an amazing kind of collection of ideas. Well, yeah, let's dig into one of those ideas. And one of the proposals was sustainable concrete. And, and I'll be honest it didn't really grab me when I first saw it, but there's a reason I absolutely should be interested. Why is that? Well, first of all, it's a contradiction in terms right now. You know, uh, concrete is responsible for 7% of the world's carbon dioxide emissions because it uses fossil fuels, intense heat to make. And yet after water, it's the world's most used substance. So sustainable concrete is a a really powerful idea. And I spoke to someone from the MIT Concrete Sustainability Hub, and it's hard to believe something like that exists, but they're doing incredible work. And what makes concrete sustainable? Well, they're reformulating it so that it can have different um, materials, so that it doesn't take such intense heat to make and that it doesn't give off so much CO2 when it's being made. Is that a hard process to go through? It's tough. It is. And it's extraordinarily challenging in terms of the science and the economics. You know, uh, you have to transition this entire global industry to a new process. That, that ain't cheap. No, doesn't sound cheap. So um, here's another proposal. Hi, Patricia Spence with the Urban Farming Institute. Since the pandemic hit, we've been growing more food and seedlings for our folks experiencing higher rates of food insecurity. With increased recovery funding, we can acquire more land and train more urban farmers so we can do our part to meet the other rapidly approaching crisis, climate change. A a fact sheet from University of Michigan puts carbon emissions from transporting food at around 5%. But how does Pat Spence propose we actually get the land needed to grow more food locally? Well, the way she's developed the land, she has five plots around Mattapan and Roxbury and Dorchester in Boston. And she's got it through land trusts. That is, people donate the land, they get a tax benefit, and forevermore it becomes taken out of use for development except for farming. The idea is you have food grown where people use it. Not only that, but she teaches people how to market the foods and how to distribute the foods. So you're reducing the carbon miles that it needs to get from farm to fork. All right. So moving on to quadrupling every state's energy efficiency investment. That's another proposal. Also sounds kind of expensive. What's the benefit here? Oh, the benefit is huge, Morgan, because much of the energy that is used is used to heat and cool our buildings. But retrofitting existing buildings, which has to be done if we're going to meet our greenhouse gas emission goals and climate goals, is very tough. It's very expensive. If you can invest in that, in new old buildings, 
reducing their need for carbon fuels and giving people jobs and creating a new industry around that, well, then you've not only helped dig your way out of this COVID-19 crisis, but you've set up your communities and your cities for going forward to meeting the next crisis, which is you know, climate change. One of the people you talk to about a specific idea here is Susan Almano. She's one of the co-founders of Merrimack Valley Interfaith team. Um, Let's listen to what she had to say. The program I would put at the center of a pandemic stimulus bill to address climate change would be free insulation for all buildings. This would lower everyone's energy bill, help small businesses grow, and provide many new jobs for energy assessors, insulation technicians, and inspectors. You know, the idea is a multiplier effect, right? You know, insulation, for example, can give you, for every dollar you spend on insulation, it's estimated between 4 and $7 in payback in terms of reduced emissions and reduced consumption. So if we took that money now and invested it in retrofitting homes, building energy-efficient plants and so on, we're getting extraordinary bangs for our buck. Could this have a particularly positive impact on communities of color where air pollution is often worse? Absolutely, because we now know that COVID-19 really attacks communities where they have high levels of pollution near airports, near roadways. So, you know, you could definitely have a positive impact on, on those communities. Your goal in, in writing this article was to kick off the conversation. So so what's next? Which ideas actually have the chance of becoming a reality? Well, it's really interesting. I started this project about two months ago, and many of these ideas, which kind of were around to be sure, have now been picked up in a bill being considered by the Democrats in Congress for a $1.5 trillion COVID recovery. So, you know, there, there's a possibility that they could actually see the light of day, but uh, we'll see. And we should just note the CARES Act, which approved economic relief money earlier in the pandemic, didn't direct money toward green recovery, but who's to say what future legislation could hold? Exactly. I would say that, you know, globally, $12 trillion has gone to the COVID-19 recovery, and only 0.2% of that money has been spent on green projects. Wow. Well, we'll leave it there. Bruce Gellerman is a senior reporter at WBUR in Boston. It's been great to talk to you, Bruce. Thank you. You're welcome, Morgan. Bruce wrote about 16 different options that environmental thinkers are proposing. To learn about the other ideas, go to our website, nextnewengland.org, and click on the post for episode 206. On Next, we've reported on how nursing homes and other long-term care facilities have been especially hard hit with coronavirus deaths. To keep the virus out, nursing homes have been on lockdown for months. But those safety measures have come at a high cost. Without visits from friends and loved ones, many residents are dealing with extreme isolation. Today we bring you the story of Peter and Dottie Miller in New Hampshire. Peter has lived in a nursing home for the past five years. He's deaf and deals with a variety of other health problems that require around-the-clock care. His wife, Dottie, lives alone in the home they shared for two decades, and normally she would visit Peter twice a day. But the pandemic has forced Dottie and Peter apart. April 20th. My name is Peter Miller. I am 77 years old. The administrator of my nursing home knows that I like to write 
and suggested that I keep a record of my thoughts and feelings about the coronavirus pandemic in a journal. So that is what I've commenced today. I want to try to describe what it's like in my nursing home right now. Residents have not been allowed to have any visitors. We have been quarantined in our rooms for the whole two months with no one but staff and our roommates to interact with. Can't management see that residents need more than nonstop TV to sustain their will to live? My roommate just sits in his armchair all day long, listlessly watching the same TV channel. Is it okay to kill people with nothingness if that's what it takes to protect them from coronavirus? April 27th, the lone exception to the no visitor rule is that a resident can have the loved ones present while he is dying. My wife Dottie and I have shared our feelings about this. I told her that I would prefer she not be present while I am dying. I don't want her last memory of me to be how I looked when I was near death, and I don't want her to expose herself to the virus. Well, it's a lovely morning, a little chilly the way I like it, and I'm gonna make some scrambled eggs for me and the dogs. I'm glad that I like to be at home alone because um, otherwise I don't know what I would do. I felt really guilty that I couldn't take care of him by myself. And we had, we had home health aides coming in and it just wasn't working. I moved through it until the COVID-19 crisis hit and people were dying in nursing homes. And then I, then I, you know, I rethought, I thought, is there any way he can live at home so he can be safe? And I, I can't, we don't have the funds for him to live at home. So, so my guilt came back because I know if he lives at home, he's safer, but I'm stuck with not being able to provide that for him. I think it's grief. I think I'm grieving. May 26th. Yesterday I watched one of my favorite movies, The Best Years of Our Lives, filmed after the Second World War ended. The movie portrays the difficulties soldiers experienced as they try to readjust to civilian life. 
I liked the realism, particularly the awkwardness the men and their wives displayed as they tried to rekindle their romantic feelings. The film made me wonder how it will feel for me and Dottie when we are able to be together again. Will we experience an awkward readjustment? I miss Dottie's proximity and her affectionate touch. I feel so alone here sometimes. So, first of all, I had a test for COVID-19 that came back negative. Then I sent an email to the administrator and said, I'm free of COVID-19. Is there any way I can visit Peter? And she said no, which I kind of knew she was going to say, but I figured it was worth a try. And um, Peter has gets terrible ear infections and he, it's been three months now. So we're worried that he has an ear infection. So the doctor's office said he has to come in. So that's the only reason that he's allowed out of the building. And um, they said, why doesn't Dottie go? Yeah. Oh, I'm so excited. I can't believe it. I feel like it's our first date. I'm like, I'm like giddy with oh my god I can't believe it now I'm getting in the car getting ready to see Peter which I haven't seen him in three months because of the pandemic I pressed the record button while I was waiting for him and you can and I listened to it and you can hear my excitement and him coming through the door oh here he is here he is is this him wait a minute it's him yes okay. I haven't seen him in three months and well there was no privacy in that moment so that was kind of weird but um you can tell in the tape where there's no there's no sound we're just taking each other in You look so nice. I dressed up for our date. I love your show. <laughs> uh, three whole months, can you believe it? It's been so long. This is wonderful. It is. So, we went down to the doctor's office and they gave it they put us in a room where the doctor was and um i we told him that we hadn't seen each other for three months so after his appointment the, the doctor was so cute he was like we can just put you in an exam room and you're still in being examined i was like oh that would be so wonderful thank you I'm going to leave my mask up. Who cares? Do you think I should put it back up? No. It's okay like this? Yeah. I love you, honey. 
It shouldn't be that difficult to make this happen periodically. Well, I'll work on it. Ooh, what is that? Cheddar. Swiss. Mmm. Good thinking. Maybe I'll wheel forward a bit so we can touch. Okay, let's hold hands. <laughs> How's that? Your hands are so soft. I better soak it up. Me too. Well, you have a lovely smile. Oh. I hope I do too. You do. I'm, I'm glad you're holding up well. I am. I know it hasn't been easy for you either. No, it hasn't. Do you want to kiss? <laughs> Let's kiss. <laughs> Are we naughty? <laughs> Don't tell anybody we did that. It's on the back. It's on the the tape. <laughs> Just to you know, the thing that for twenty five years we've been together. We've been together. <laughs> You know, except for a couple weeks here and there, we've been together. And so to be apart for three months, I mean, even though he's living in the nursing home, we're together, we were together every day, seven days a week, twice a day. So it gave me a taste for what it's going to be like when he dies, if he dies before me, but he's older than I am and he's his health is more compromised than I mine. So it gave me a taste of that. I realized that as I was alone. May 5th. I have been doing some end of life reflecting. Dottie and I are planning to meet in the afterlife. Years ago, she wanted to be reincarnated as a hawk. That inspired me to write a love poem for her titled Hawks way back in 1995, the second year of our marriage. Waking again, that glorious feeling, morning light shimmering and sealing. A swift north wind disturbing autumn's leaves. The bedroom curtains swaying in the breeze. Well, my bride, my lover, what do you say? Shall we meet on that mountaintop today? Hawks will be gliding south 
and graceful sweeps, and you and I have promises to keep. That was Peter and Dottie Miller, a couple separated by the coronavirus. New Hampshire Public Radio's Lauren Children produced that story. After the break, a prolific author writes about growing old, the pleasures that come with aging, and the prejudice. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. We're back. Elizabeth Marshall Thomas has spent most of her life observing the natural world and writing about it. Elizabeth has written 14 books over her half-century career, including the New York Times bestselling book, The Hidden Life of Dogs. Her new book is called Growing Old, Notes on Aging with Something Like Grace, which came out this year. Elizabeth Marshall Thomas is 88 years old, and she joins us by Zoom from her home in New Hampshire to talk about the book. Elizabeth, welcome to Next. Well, thank you for having me, gosh. On the sleeve of the book, there's a picture of you lighting a cigarette from the candles of a cake that's for your 88th birthday. What's that about? Well, uh, hmm. it's that I smoke. I mean, I know you shouldn't, and I know it's very bad, but I do it anyway. But on the other hand, it said that two-thirds of the people who smoke die of smoking, but that means that one-third of them don't. And somebody has to be in that one-third, so I figure might as well. (laughs) I feel like it also shows, um, you know, I haven't met you, but through reading your book, you seem to have a fun and humorous spirit, and that kind of is indicative of it, yeah? Yeah, I I like things that are funny, yeah, very much. (laughs) In the book, you say, life while aging can be wonderful. It's just wonderful in in a different way than it was when you were young. Now, when you were younger, you spent three years among the San people in the Kalahari Desert, and you wrote about them. You spent a summer alone in a cave in the Arctic studying wolves, and you wrote about that. Is part of the message of the book that while life might be different and simpler now, it's just as pleasurable? That's exactly true. I mean, other things are also pleasurable. You don't have to be in a cave in the Arctic to have a good time. Writing is pleasurable. It's my favorite thing. I enjoy taking walks. I enjoy the the landscape here. I enjoy looking at animals. We have deer come in the field, and there was a bear the other day. He was very interesting. I mean, that kind of thing. In the book, uh, you talk about how people in their 50s will say, oh, I'm so old. And at 88, your perspective on 50-year-old is completely different. Um, Can you talk about that? To me, 50 is childhood. I mean, not quite, but kind of grown children, but but very young. I mean, when I'm when I'm eighty, my kids are sixty. Sixty seems young. I mean sixty is young. My favorite years, frankly, were fifty, sixty, and seventy. What did you love about those years? I just had a good time. I was healthy. I could do everything that I could always do mostly. I mean I used to be able to lift a hundred pounds. I don't know if I could when I was sixty, but I could lift eighty pounds. Now I can lift ten pounds. <laughs> I mean, there comes a point where you feel you've gone downhill. Before that, you don't have that feeling. Hmm. You describe this interaction with your neighbor in the book. Uh, She comes over to visit you. She brings you soup, and you invite her in to talk for a little while. Um, And I'm wondering if you could read the passage on page 13 from that point. 
Yes, gladly. She asks if you're in good health. You tell her you are. And then she talks about the weather. But she's visiting you because you're old. And her talk turns to other old people she knows. She reveals their medical issues. One has arthritis. Another has osteoporosis. And a third is getting dementia. You also have arthritis. And when you express your sympathy, your neighbor sees she just reminded you that your body is failing. She chooses a more appropriate topic. My grandmother is 93, she says brightly. My great aunt lived to 98. You ponder this. When you were in your 30s, your neighbors didn't tell you they knew people in their 40s. Your neighbor sees you as a walking cadaver. Her demise isn't imminent, but yours is. <laughs> I feel like there's so much in there, which is like humor, but also this experience of maybe people acting what could be perceived as oddly the older you get. What do you get out of that passage? I think that happens. I think, I mean, I think it's very common. To count into what you're saying, the fact that you realize that people are old and you're trying to get them away from it or something like that. You also say in the book that, quote, many younger people don't really like old people and that they're prejudiced against them. Where do you see this prejudice come out most in your experience? Oh, it comes out a lot, everywhere. Uh, I, I searched, when I was writing this book, I searched through the internet for jokes about old people, and there, there's zillions of them, and all, all, 99% are about women peeing in their pants. They really aren't very funny. Speaking of respect for older people and the cultures that have the respect for older people, things like this would never, ever happen. Yeah, you talk about how the cultures you've studied, uh, elders were revered, um, and they were still considered useful because they could offer guidance based on their memories of the past. Now, as you write, we have written records for that. And you say, quote, our society respects old people only if they're famous, and often not even then. What are some of the things you'd like to see younger generations do to show more respect and to stop acting prejudiced? They'll find out soon enough when they get old, but um, yeah, I don't see how it's possible to, to achieve that. I don't think that younger people are ever going to, in this culture, not with the culture we've got, it isn't going to happen. So uh, my grandmother was born during the Civil War, so she didn't know about telephones until she was maybe in her 70s, and she was afraid of telephones. Well, I am equally afraid of computers. I mean, I had to have my son help me get this together and uh, um, because we're talking via a computer. And Yeah, uh, I appreciate that. I mean, I was just in a nervous wreck while he was oh my God. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh, no, 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 don't be. He, no, he did. He, obviously, he succeeded because here we are. But the thought of me doing that myself is just unimaginable. And since our culture has moved so far forward with technology, I suspect that that's going to be true, you know, for the next generations. Another thing you describe in the book is this feeling of being erased. Yes, well, I think that comes in with respect for elderly people. I think people certainly don't ask you what you think about things because everything has changed since you had the ability to think, according to them, and the very seldom do people, in my experience anyway, people don't ask you about the past or how things were at one time. 
because they don't care. It's how things are now that matter. And you don't have the same grip on the things now that they do. And that's that's just true. As you write, and we all, of course, know the conclusion of old age is death. Yeah. Um, are you afraid of dying? No. No, I've never been. I'm, I mean, I know it's going to happen. I mean, it's not that I want it, but I'll probably die in the next few years, if not sooner. I mean, you know, that's what happens. You say that b- before you die, you should prepare mostly t- to ease the burden on loved ones. And toward the end of the book, you outline your plans and you even write your own obituary with a couple like <laughs> fill in the blank parts. I'm not sure is... I'll use it, but I hope they will. It's a little long. <laughs> I don't know. I liked it. I enjoyed it. Um, but for listeners who haven't read the book, um, can you just explain your plans and why you made the specific choices that you did? Uh, my husband was cremated, so I think I'd, I want to be cremated because I want to be in, and I want to be in the same grave with my parents and my husband and my dogs who are there. I mean, also they should do what they want. I mean, you're not going to care because you'll be dead. <laughs> yeah. What would be your advice, or do you have any advice for someone like me who is younger? about aging? Gosh, I would just not think about it too much. I would just enjoy things and take things as they come. You don't need to prepare for aging. It happens slowly. And you get used to it a little bit at a time. You forget names. Then you forget verbs, but you already were forgetting names. I mean, it's not some horrible shock. It's just a little, little more than you had before, and you were dealing with that. And so that really is how it goes. Well, thank you so much for that advice and for talking to me today. I really appreciate it. A pleasure. That was Elizabeth Marshall Thomas, the author of many books, and most recently, Growing Old, Notes on Aging with Something Like Grace, which came out this year. She lives in New Hampshire. And that's a wrap today. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer. Vanessa De La Torre is our executive editor. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. Daniela Luna is our intern. All the music you hear on Next is by musicians in New England. If you want to know who you heard today, visit our show page at nextnewengland.org. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WCAI, WGBH, WSHU, and the Public's Radio.